All right, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll, we're continuing our journey through the book of Philippians. We're halfway through. We're in Philippians in the start of chapter 3, but let me pray first. Holy Father, thank you. Thank you for this church. Uh, what a blessing it is to be a part of a church family where your name is honored and where uh, we experience your love and where we love one another and, and encourage and support one another. It's a blessing that you've given us to each other and that we're able to run this race together. And we thank you for that. I pray your blessing upon our church family and we pray now as we turn our minds uh, to your holy word that you would help us to understand it and believe it and apply it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm in Ephesians 3. I'll read it in a second. Ephesians 3 and verses 1 to 11. Um, we, don't, we don't know a whole lot about the Apostle Paul's life, actually. Uh, we know a lot about what he believed, because we can read his letters, and they're full of what he believed. Uh, we know a bit about his um, missionary journeys, because those stories are told in the book of Acts. But we don't know a lot about uh, his younger years, before he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. The little bit that we do know about Paul's life, uh, the little bit we know about his background, uh, it, it, comes, it comes from this little autobiographical section in this, in this book of Philippians. And so what I'm going to do is just read the first six verses, Philippians 3, 1 to 6, uh, and we're going to look at what Paul has to say about himself and his upbringing. He writes this, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I'm going to stop there and I'll pick it up uh, later in the sermon and read the rest. In this passage, we find out that according to Jewish tradition, Paul had an excellent pedigree. Paul was born into the right family, and Paul did all the right things, circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the law. Not only an Israelite, but from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That, that implies that his bloodline is pure, going all the way back to Abraham. Raised to be a meticulous keeper of the law, a Pharisee, a zealous persecutor of the church, and blameless in his faithfulness to God's law. All right, in, in Paul's first century Jewish context, that was the best possible pedigree. And except for that part about persecuting the church, those are all good things that he's listing. And so I, as I thought about that, I'm trying to think, okay, well, what would be the equivalent for us, right? If we were listing a good, a good pedigree, we probably wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't be talking about circumcision or keeping the law or being a Pharisee, but... Maybe if we think about what it means to be from the right family in our context, we might say something like, well, he came from a hardworking, honest, 
church-attending family. He was baptized into God's covenant as an infant. He grew up in the church, attended catechism, made profession of faith. He works hard, is honest, serves the church, serves the community, is Dutch. Those kind of things. Those are the kind of things that we value in our community. Uh, that, would be, that would be kind of the rough equivalent of Paul's credentials when, he, when he's giving his list here. So if a Jewish person was hearing Paul's list that he gives in Philippians, uh, they would be impressed. They would, they would think, wow, that guy has everything going for him. That, God must really love that guy. Which makes it all the more shocking when Paul says, okay, all of that that I just listed, all of that is rubbish compared with Christ. You, you hear that and you think, wait, wait, what? How is all that rubbish? You were born to the right family with the right bloodline. You did all the right rituals. You attended the right synagogue. You obeyed all the right laws. How is that rubbish? Well, it's rubbish not because those things are bad in and of themselves, but it's rubbish because those things are not Christ. And if you're living for anything else other than Christ, then you're living for rubbish. Uh, let me give you an example. I, I read a book this past week about a guy named Bernie Madoff. I don't know if you know that name. He was, a, he was this financial swindler. He was a criminal who cheated an awful lot of people out of their life savings. Uh, he convinced people that he could take their money and invest their money and make huge returns for them. Uh, but really what he set up was the world's biggest Ponzi scheme. Uh, I don't know why I read the book. I don't own any stock. And uh, I don't know anything about the financial world. But I think why I read it, I think I was interested in, in how so many people got taken in by this guy. His, his fake fund had like $68 billion in it. Um, I still don't quite understand how he did it, but somehow, through using a lots of charts and a lot of technical talk that people didn't understand, he convinced people to give him all their money. And then he promised them that if, if they gave him all their money, he would take it and he would make more money for them, and then by the time that they're retired, they'll be wealthy. Well, in, in the year 2008, the whole fraudulent scheme came crashing down, and it was revealed to be a house of cards, just an illusion. Bernie Madoff went to jail for the rest of his life, which is definitely what he deserved. But all of those people who had given all of their life savings, who were trusting in his, this money-making scheme to provide for them for the rest of their lives, suddenly realized all their money was gone. Gone. The very thing that they had been trusting in and counting on turned out to be an illusion. What they thought was gold was actually rubbish. That's the experience that Paul had when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. Prior to that moment, Paul, you can see from the letter, Paul had been putting his trust in his own lineage, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul was putting his trust in his own ability to keep the law, to be a good person. Right? As to righteousness under the law, blameless, he writes. Right? And suddenly, in that moment when he met Jesus, he realized that the things that he had been trusting in were, it's actually an illusion. Worthless. 
So what was the problem with these things that he was trusting in? Well, Paul explains the problem in verse 3. He says, for, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Right? He's saying the circumcision is not about something that you physically do to your body. True worshipers are the ones who are worshiping God on the inside. And true faith is trusting God and not trusting ourselves. See, the, the problem was that all of the good things that Paul was doing, they were all external. Right? They, were, they were all about his actions instead of about his heart. Right? Born to the right family, received the right rituals, kept the right laws. The problem is that you can do all those things and still have a heart that's far from God. But the true circumcision, the true children of Abraham are those who worship Jesus and are those who put no confidence in the flesh, who put no confidence in, in, in the external actions that they've done. At the, end of, and at the end of the day, it's not about our pedigree. It's not about our resume, but Jesus's. And it's per perfectly understandable why Paul would have made that mistake. I mean, Imagine submitting a resume that says nothing about your own personal accomplishments and instead only talks about someone else, right? Well, he did this, and he did that, and I actually don't, don't have anything to offer, but that guy sure did a lot of good things, so please hire me based on, based on what he did. You'd never get hired. That's not how the world works, but, but that's what's happening here. And thankfully, the good news is God's not looking for employees, He's looking for children. And according to the Bible, the way that we enter into the family of God is not because of anything that we've done or not done, but it's only by grace, through faith in Christ. And he is the only person who possesses the perfect pedigree, the perfect resume, right? Not only is he a son of Abraham, but he's the only begotten son of God. He's the only person who has never ever in thought, in word, or indeed, ever sinned in the slightest. He never failed to do something that he should have done. He never did anything that he shouldn't have done. He is perfectly righteous. And what Paul is saying here is that my resume and your resume are all simply garbage compared with the perfect resume of Christ Jesus. And the greatest blessing in the world is not to accomplish great things, but to simply know Jesus. That's what Paul means when he says, but, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So, so everything else is garbage, that's the word he uses, compared with the blessing of knowing Jesus. That's a comparative statement. That doesn't mean that everything is actually bad. It doesn't mean that everything that we do is bad. It simply means that nothing compares with the blessing of knowing Jesus. So, so the question is, do we really believe that? And do we live accordingly? And one way to tell if we believe that, here's a little test that you can run on yourself, is to ask, ask ourselves, what's the thing we're most looking forward to about heaven? Is it that... Is it that the, every day the weather will be perfect and you can golf every day. That's what someone told me once. That's why he was looking forward to heaven. Um, is, it that, is it that heaven will be a place with, 
with no pain and suffering and no death and no sadness. I mean, th- those are good things, but that's not going to be the best part of heaven. Is it that we'll be reunited with loved ones? I, I, I often hear people say that that's what they're most looking forward to about heaven is, is uh, seeing loved ones again, and I totally understand that. I'm going to be speaking at my grandma's memorial service next week, and, and I'm definitely looking forward to being reunited with her in heaven. But the best thing about heaven is that we get to be in the presence of God. We get to be in the presence of Jesus forever, experiencing His unveiled glory and knowing Him intimately. And if that's not how we feel, if that's not the best thing that we're looking forward to about heaven, then then we've missed the point. The other things are good, but it's Jesus Himself who is of surpassing worth. Uh, Think of it like like, like marriage, when, when someone gets married, if they get married for the benefits instead of get married for the person that they're marrying, we think that they've missed the point of marriage, right? So if you marry for money or if you, if you marry in order to gain access to the citizenship of your spouse or, or for some other benefit that your spouse can give you, that's a, that's a distortion of what marriage is for. But, but does that mean that there are no benefits to marriage? Well, well, no. Marriage is, is full of blessings, full of benefits, full of joys, but the primary blessing is the relationship with your spouse. And it's the same thing in our relationship with Jesus. We get, we get all kinds of blessings. We get all kinds of benefits. We get eternal life. We get peace that surpasses understanding. We get a whole family of brothers and sisters in Christ. We get, we get a Savior who's willing to carry our burdens. I mean, on and on and on the list goes. But the primary blessing is that we get to know Jesus. And what does that mean? How can we, how can we meaningfully speak of knowing Jesus when, when he's not here in the flesh with us anymore? Well, Paul, Paul gives an explanation in the, in the final verses. So let me read those final verses. Paul writes, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. According to this passage, knowing Jesus begins with faith in Jesus, right? Faith, faith is a God-given gift that enables us to trust in Jesus, right? To trust that Jesus is who he said he is and that he did what he said he did. And I, I, I say it's a God-given gift because according to the Bible, it's not that we just make up our mind to have faith in Jesus. If that were the case, then at least we could take some credit for making a good choice to trust in Jesus. But even that choice is a gift from God. We're told in the Bible that it's the Holy Spirit who regenerates our dead hearts and makes us alive and enables us to stop trusting in our own resume and to start trusting in Jesus alone. 
And that kind of trust means that it, we, we, don't just, we, we don't just trust him to, to give us the gift of eternal life, but we trust him enough to obey him in all things. We trust him enough to follow where he leads. Even if the path leads to suffering, we trust him. That's what... Did I just... Oh, okay. <laughs> you thought I was going to sneeze, right? <laughs> um, that's what faith is, Right? Faith is not just a willingness to receive the gift of eternal life, although, of course, it is that, but faith is a willingness to follow, to trust Him, to follow where He leads, even if He leads us to hard places. Paul writes, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. That's a reference to the gift of eternal life. But he also says, that I may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. So knowing Jesus is the greatest thing in the universe. And the way that we know him is by having faith in him, believing that he is the perfect son of God who perfectly kept the law, who was crucified and raised again from the dead. By believing all that, but also by trusting, trusting him enough to follow in joyful obedience no matter where he leads, even if it leads to suffering in this life. And that life of trusting and obeying and knowing Jesus then will culminate in eternal life in his presence in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, I'll just close with one, with one example, one story of someone who lived life like that. It, uh, there's a movie about, about him right now. Marco and I watched this movie a, a few weeks ago. The movie's called A Hidden Life. Uh, it's a true story. It tells the story of Franz Jägerstatter. I highly recommend this movie to you. It came out a couple years ago, maybe two years ago. Uh, You can rent it now. It's easily one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. It's it's worth watching, if for no other reason, it's worth watching for these beautiful scenes of of farming. It it, it takes place in a small alpine village, uh, and they're all farmers, and it's just, it's lovely to look at. It's beautiful cinematography, but even more beautiful than the pictures is the story. Uh, Franz Jägerstatter was drafted to serve in the army, uh, in, the, in the Nazi army, during World War II. Uh, and at first he, he does, and he goes and he serves like every single uh, man his age did back then. But as he's serving in the Nazi army, army, he realizes that the things the army are doing, is doing are evil. <laughs> that it turns out his country is not on the side of good. <laughs> and he realizes that, and uh, he he realizes that to serve in this evil army would be against the teachings of Christ. It would be against the law of love. And so, because of his faith in Christ, because of his his commitment to obey Christ, no matter what the cost, he refuses to swear loyalty to Hitler. I guess that's what all the soldiers had to do back then. They had to make an oath of loyalty to Hitler. And he basically said, look, I can't do that. I'm not going to. Well, the result of that obedience to Christ, the disobedience to the government, was that he was thrown in prison. He was given a death sentence. And his family that was left behind on the farm, his wife and children, uh, they, they are harassed and persecuted by the rest of the village for their faithfulness. And what, what I think the, the movie so beautifully conveys is that there is always a cost to following Christ. And sometimes Christians are forced to pay the ultimate price for their convictions. But it's, it's 
in our faithful obedience to Christ that we encounter him, that we know him, that we experience the power of his resurrection. That's where we meet him. As we're walking the path of faithfulness, that's where we encounter Christ. That's where we know him and experience him. So there's a scene in the movie where Francis, um, he's in a church. He's trying to figure out what he's going to do. There's an old man also in the church, and the guy is an artist. And he paints images of Bible scenes on walls in churches. And they're beautiful. But the artist, this guy, he's, uh, he, he's not happy. He, he actually is lamenting his inability to truly represent Christ in the pictures. They're just beautiful pictures, but they're not Christ. And he says, well, my pictures, they create admirers, but they don't create followers. And the implication in the movie is clear. Jesus is not looking for people who will stand back and admire the things that he said and admire the things that he did. Jesus isn't looking for admirers. He's looking for people who will follow him. That's what Franz Jägerstadter did. He chose to be a follower and not just an admirer. And the path he followed led to his own execution. And yet through his obedience, Franz Jägerstadter experienced in a real and tangible way the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. And that blessing is available to each one of us as we learn to count everything else as loss, as we learn to lay aside our own resume, as we learn to lay aside all the good things that we've done and worship Christ by the Spirit of Christ and glory in Christ and follow Him in joyful obedience. And when we do that, we experience what it means to know Jesus and the power of His resurrection. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're, that you're real. <laughs> thank you for the life that you lived. Thank you that you came to earth, laid aside your glory and came to earth and lived a perfect life of love that we could never do. Thank you that you died on the cross to pay for our sins, to pay the debt that we could never pay. And thank you that you rose again from the dead. And thank you that now by faith we have access to the power of your resurrection. Thank you that now by faith we can know you. We can experience you. And I pray that as we, as a church collectively, and we as individuals, as we walk by faith, as we take steps of humble and faithful obedience to you, trusting that you're a good shepherd, and that you lead us to good pastures, even if sometimes the way is through hard places, I pray that in, in our following of you, we would experience you and that we would know you. And in knowing you, all other things, all other things will count as loss. In your name, amen.